It's Monday, April 29th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 205 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is a multi-talented legend of underground music. Today on the show, guitarist, electronic musician, producer, studio engineer, mastering engineer, James Plotkin. Let's have a listen. This is a pretty recent recording of James improvising in duo with the great Paul Nilsson Love. Like I said, James is a legend, and today is a really good episode of the show. Today on the show, James Plotkin. What do you guys know about James? I imagine for a lot of you, uh, you're probably pretty familiar with at least some aspect of what he's been up to for the last couple of decades. I have known James digitally for years now. What I mean by that is, um, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've been familiar with James's work for forever. He is, you know, you're going to hear about it today, but he is really a crucial part of a lot of underground music for the last several years. Uh, and by underground music, I mean various strains of metal, um, improvised music, ambient music, electronic music. Uh, he's been very active across a really wide range of things. Um, and I've certainly been familiar with James as a listener, uh, mainly through uh, the band Con 8, which is, you know, in my mind, one of the great bands of, of metal of the last 25 years. Uh, truly an original band, kind of a super group. Uh, that's the band... They've been, you know, they broke up years ago, but that was Plotkin on bass, Steve O'Malley, who I'm sure a lot of you know from Sun and other projects on guitar, Tim Wiskaita on drums, and Alan Dubin on vocals. But I was, I've also always been a fan of James's stuff uh, that he did as Phantom Smasher and Adam Smasher. He put out some pretty insane records uh, on Zorn's pre-Zotic label, um, Avant, and. I didn't really think about it until James came over. He's actually, I, I think he's mastered all but one record um, that I've put out on 5049. So we've had this like digital, we've never met in person before today's conversation, but he's actually, I didn't think about it until, until he left, but he's actually been a really crucial part of, of my label and the releases that I've been doing. He's mastered all of them, all but the, the most recent one. So it was a little weird to, to, you know, have kind of been involved with someone uh, creatively having never met for a number of years. And I have to say that today's conversation with James Plotkin is, is one of my favorite ones uh, from, uh, from recent memory. This is a musician who I am very enthusiastic about as a listener. And I was just really excited to get to talk to him and, you know, ask him questions about music that I love. And in a way, I was a little nervous you know, um, when you when you listen to a band like Con Eight, you know, the assumption might be these you know are some pretty scary guys. Uh, I know that's stupid, but but James is totally 
affable, hilarious, friendly guy. Um, and, and like I said, I really, really love this conversation a lot. For those of you that maybe, you know, who listen to this show regularly, who might not already be familiar with James, um, you should be. What I mean by that is if you're a fan of like improvised music, you know, and you, you tend to listen to this show for, for that side of things. James has been working for years with really heavy improvisers, you know, whether it's um, Ikwe Mori and Kato Areki or, you know, John Zorn, Paul Nilsson Love, who he was just playing with. You know, he's an improviser of the highest order. He's also a studio wizard, you know. Uh, he makes compelling records, records that I come back to time and time again. That record with Paul Nilsson Love, I mean, that, you know, I'm, I'll probably upset a few people by saying this, but it's not that common that I hear a record of improvised music and feel compelled to listen to it more than once or twice. I've listened to that record two dozen times. It's really, really satisfying music. Um, to try and list or, or explain here all of James's discography as a musician, but also as you know, a producer, mastering engineer, would be very daunting. I think it's very daunting for James to put it together on a website. But if you want to explore the world of James Plotkin more, go to plotkinworks.com. Full discography. Um, he's the man. James really, really pulls pulls the music out of music when he's working on it. And if you guys out there listening are, are musicians, um, I mean, honestly, uh, people ask me a lot for advice on who to go to for like a mastering engineer. And I always recommend James. He does a great job. Super easy to work with. Um, check him out. Go to plotkinworks.com. Check out his music. All of it is incredibly rad. If you're enjoying this show, the 5049 Podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash 5049 Podcast. Sign up. Five bucks a month. As a thank you, I, I will give you immediate access to the entire archive. That's over 100 episodes of one-on-one of -on -one conversations. Uh, you know the deal. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And from time to time, I send out bonus stuff. Last week, uh, I made a, a mixtape of some of my favorite soundtrack music, and that was available to subscribers only. So do that. And if uh, you want to help out in another way, please rate, review, and subscribe in iTunes. Word of mouth. That's how shit still works. Word of mouth. All right. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with James Plotkin. I, I've never, I've always been pretty optimistic about like New York retaining some version of itself. Yeah. It's gotta be difficult these days. Yeah, that, that yeah. Uh, optimism is yeah. rapidly. I gave up on uh, that area when Kim's Underground finally shut down. Because that was like the mecca of fucking, you know, CDs and videos and stuff. I mean, you know, the topic of like New York not being as cool as it once was yeah like whatever it doesn't need to be rehashed but there are like i do feel like a ghost sometimes when yeah. i'm walking around yeah you know like everything i knew like isn't there yeah and the people that are now walking around like they don't even know that it was there no it's weird clubs like tonic oh that's you know yeah, that, that's... that really hurt that one 
So, so many fucking good Dude, shows. Dude, I saw right? a Con 8 at Tonic. Oh, with, wow. Because my friend Paulie was playing drums at Harvey Milk. Right, right. And I remember I got there like just at the end of the show. I barely caught the end of the show. Uh-huh. Sorry. Uh, but I saw Paulie outside. And he was like, they're so loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody was just trying to keep up with O'Malley's uh, three <laughs> full stacks. At Tonic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tonic, you know, like... It was meant for experimental music. It's always yeah, kind yeah. of a weird place to hear like loud bands yeah, with drums sure. and guitars. Yeah, they didn't really even start uh, booking metal and stuff there until you know towards the end of its existence. Because yeah. all the shows I went to there early on were you know yeah jazz or free improvised music, experimental. Yeah, yeah. I played people. there I think with uh, Francisco Lopez too, like ages ago. Uh, yeah, that name. Spanish, heavily experimental. A lot of a lot of concepts and uh-huh. you know near silence and stuff like that he does a lot of like i think these days he's just doing like uh expeditions in in the like in the rainforest for sound for uh like in field Peru. recordings and stuff like he'll actually conduct classes for field recordings out there that sounds way more fulfilling yeah, than yeah. improvising a tonic. oh yeah for sure <laughs> Let me see if I can get this thing to shut up. Did wait? Are you you grew up in the East Village? You from New York? Uh, I grew up in a suburb just outside of Manhattan in Bergenfield, which is like Jersey. Yeah, six or seven miles so from like George just, Washington Bridge, just north of Newark. Yeah, yeah. So I like you know spent my youth coming to New York on the bus and you know record shops back when Tower Records was on Broadway. And, Tower was awesome. Yeah, back when it was like a vinyl shop, man. It was well. Great. I mean, Tower is one of those things where like. You know, people are dismissive of chains. Yeah. Like, they'll be dismissive of it without realizing that Tower Records, when it was on Broadway and, like, fourth, third or fourth, whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, third, Three stories. Yeah. And then the uh, video store right down the street. Right, right. It was amazing. Yeah. And the people working there knew their shit. Yep. Their jazz. It was the only place in New York where you could get the, uh, like, the the Miles Davis 70s Japanese CDs. I remember I'd call them and ask if they would get any in and yeah. occasionally be like, yeah, we just, you know, got, got a couple things in and I'd go in there and spend like 50 bucks for a double oh. CD. And but it was like, Oh, I finally have, you know, like black beauty on, yeah. on CD. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's so did you listen to that shit as a teenager? Oh uh, yeah. Like the yeah, dark I, electric mile stuff. Yeah. Um, when, when I was really young, uh, I'd occasionally go over, uh, John Zorn's place. And, and, oh, his house. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. When he, I don't know if he still lives there, but he's it was in the like same place. Alphabet City. Yeah. yeah, whole apartment was just like record shells and stuff. And I was just getting into jazz, but it was like through the downtown New York scene. It was yeah. more like the sort of weird, experimental, even slightly metal-related stuff. And uh, what year are we talking? Uh, this had to be like like maybe late 90s i guess late like 90s 98 99 okay sometime around there is that right no i'm it's sorry been earlier it's much earlier yeah uh it was like if that one old record came out in like 91 yeah so it had to be like late 80s okay so that would have been like <clears throat> excuse me like earache records yeah right because like he was going a, right that's yeah. how i met him was uh through you know he was a fan of the earache stuff and mick harris used to come stay with me a lot when when we were young and uh you know, he started playing with, with John, and I met John and people like him and uh, Bill Laswell through Mick. And uh, John was asking me if I was into a lot of jazz, and I was like, oh, I don't really know all that much. Uh-huh. So he started me off with, like, the, the I stuff I mean, you that... could do a lot worse than getting, like, right, jazz right. schooled by yeah, his yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I was young. I was a was kind of a 
you know, a problem child and, and like socially. I, yeah, just an yeah. asshole. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, yeah. I I should be thankful that he put up with someone like me for He's a like while. that for a lot of people, myself included. Yeah, yeah. Like I go through phases with him where we we see a lot of each other. Mm-hmm. But like since age like twenty one, twenty two, mm-hmm. he's been that dude. Yeah, right. Whether it's like you know, personal problems or like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a piece. He's like, you know what you need to listen to first is this, you know? Right, right. Yeah. But how did you, so wait, so you grew up in Jersey. How did, I mean, you got into this shit really young. You must have. Yeah, yeah, that was thrash metal. That's what sort of like broke me off from, you know, rock and heavy metal and stuff like that. So like it starts with the radio. Yeah. Hard I mean, rock. Uh, I was a big, you know, Zeppelin and Van Halen right. fan growing up. Yeah. And, you know, it was like, the more, the heavier, more like wild rock stuff I could find, the better. But uh, then I discovered thrash metal and it was like, that's it. Yeah, I was like maybe 14 or 15. And I started going to a lot of shows. You know, I, my, uh, I had a father that was really supportive of music because he was a musician as well. So Professionally? He, would, uh, he, early on in his life, yes. Uh, and then he started a family and, you know, he right. started actually working on Broadway as a, you know, doing stage work and stuff. Oh. And, uh, but he was, he was so good that he would like drive me and my friends to like Lemoore's or something Shit. and then sit there and wait for the show to like be out over. in the car or in the yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were like 15, 16 years old and, you know, getting into Lemoore's with like fake IDs and shit like that or CBGBs. Like, and yeah. So ground zero. You know, yeah. Shit. Totally. So it was, uh, you know, just the exposure, I guess, to the, you know, the scene that was happening at the time. And, uh-huh. and you know, I, I had been playing guitar since, like, I guess it was maybe 12 or 13, and, and piano much, much younger. So when I saw these bands and stuff, and I, I just think to myself, like, this is amazing, but I know I can play that kind of stuff, too. So I just like started... Like the thrash bands? Yeah. Do you, who were some of the first bands? Um... Like the first Possessed album. Right. I mean, you know, the first Metallica album sort of changed my life. Yeah. Then I found out through Slayer after that, like first Slayer LP. Then I was like digging deeper and deeper and I'd find like, you know, uh, Hellhammer and Cel- yeah. uh, Celtic Frost. Dude, all these bands called. have like serious musicianship going yeah, on. Yeah, right. And just, you know, brand new, a brand new sound that I'd never heard before. Yeah. It was just like blowing my mind. Yeah. And uh, it was it was actually the very first creator record uh-huh. that while I loved it to death, the musicianship was just like all over the fucking place. And that's sort of what convinced me. It's like, I, I can play this. It's like, if they can make a record yeah. playing like that, then I can do it too. So I, you know, start putting together my own stuff. And just... but, I mean, was the world of records, I mean, I, I always enjoy talking to people who like myself have varying degrees but of, of musical production mm. as part of what they do did the world of records immediately capture your imagination oh yeah definitely you know uh, i got a Tascam four track when i was about 13 or 14 your parents got it for you yeah my father got cool, it for me cool dad man yeah he was really something else yeah 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 <laughs> i yeah, tell yeah. people about you know the things he used to do and they were just like wow wow yeah, yeah. i mean the first the first show i ever played i think i was you know, I had a very early thrash band called Regurgitation, huh? and our first shows were a weekend festival in Montreal with, like, Canadian thrash bands, and I was I was fucking 15, and my father, like, booked me the Amtrak train ticket, and just, like, pushed me on the you train. Play, you, you <laughs> Jewish? 
What's that? Your parents Jewish? My father was. My yeah. mother was uh, wasp, really. They're both gone? Uh, my mother's still alive, but yeah. my father's passed. I mean, there's a lot <clears throat> that I, like, I'm not so thrilled about being Jewish. Like, I am Jewish, <laughs> so I could say that. But, like, one thing, like, all my Jewish friends, like, for the most part, have parents that are really supportive right, right. of creative endeavors. Yeah. And I, I've done enough thinking and talking about it that it is, like, sorry, part of the culture. Right, um, right. You know, so, like, every we had a rule growing up, uh, even though... Like, we were dirt fucking poor growing up. Right. We were not allowed to stay home for the summer. <laughs> we had to go to summer yeah. camp. We had right, to right. go on some kind of adventure. You know? Yeah. Builds character. Yeah, it, but I, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, like, I think, I mean, what I'm getting, um, and this is, I would certainly relate to this, like, looking at, like, a band and saying, I could do that. Or, like, mm-hmm. hearing a record saying, I, I could probably do that. Mm-hmm. I think part of that confidence comes from those experiences oh yeah sure if you're you know constantly being supported and stuff like that then excuse me you just you're you're ready to take that chance or make that jump whereas yeah. if you're constantly told you're not allowed to do this you're not allowed to do that you know it's fucking get a job. though like my yeah. wife like she grew up like but like her dad's actually from north korea <clears throat> her mom's from from south korea wow sorry uh but like she literally you know she grew up in la sneaking out to go to like the sunset strip to like see rat and shit nice but her you know her punishment like if she got in trouble for anything the punishment would be to destroy her records and tapes Oof. to take the posters down and like i just can't even imagine like reeks of fascism almost <laughs> <laughs> you dig <laughs> like the punishment would be like to destroy her artwork yeah and this yeah. is like you know a much more socially uh responsible family than like what i came from right wow but that's like yeah, that's pretty weird. It's pretty out there. Yeah. And I think that's more common than we think. Or it was. Yeah. But so how did you first contact uh become like personal contact with someone like Mick Harris? Uh just through tape trading and, and mail and stuff. I think I was uh I was hanging out on the West Coast with do you remember Cryptic Slaughter? I don't know Cryptic Slaughter. It was a California band or yeah, they were from California, and I was staying with the guys from that band Wehrmacht, which uh-huh. was, uh, they also, there was a side band of some of the members called Spastic Blur, which is one of those early earache releases. And there was there was this huge demo scene right when I was doing it, I guess like 86, 87, 88. There was a lot of underground thrash and bordering on what would become grindcore. Yeah. And, you know, I was always just looking for the more extreme, like, faster harder just whatever whatever was out there and really the only bands that were doing that at the time was like repulsion Mm -hmm. um a couple of british things that were like sort of hardcore but bordering on grind which was the first pig destroyer come out no that was like Like before this is like mid 80s mid to late 80s and uh like heresy yeah and stuff like that larm from holland that's that was the stuff that that was really grabbing me and uh and then when I was out on the West Coast with these uh, other bands, um, uh, they, I think Earache recording Spastic Blur and uh, Dig from Earache just sent them a package of records. And I had heard of the label, but uh, the first Napalm Death LP was in their scum. And I was like, I've heard about this band for so long, but couldn't, couldn't get any of it because it was just impossible to find that stuff back yeah. in the day. And then we put it on... And those guys were just laughing at it, saying it was garbage. And I was like, you guys are fucking nuts. This is the future of metal right here, you know? <laughs> and 
they wouldn't give me the record. So I like, you know, copied all the information from it and eventually got Mick Harris's address. It might have even been on the LP. I don't remember. But just wrote him a letter and sent him a demo tape of uh, the early regurgitation demos. And he wrote back and sent me all these Napalm Death like soundboard recordings and shit like that. And he apparently liked the regurgitation stuff. So we kept in touch. And the first time he was going to take a vacation to to New York, he got in touch. And, you know, I offered uh, my family's place where yeah. I was still living to come come crash. And we had extra space and we're you know, a 20 minute bus ride from Manhattan. So he came and we just started building a friendship out of that. And, you know, as time went on, the music I was playing got more and more extreme. And, uh-huh. uh, we started old lady drivers and I think, uh, earache heard a demo through Mick and, you know, just signed us for the first record. I mean, that's like something you mentioned really quickly that I don't know how familiar a lot of people now are with the the, the culture of tape trading. Yeah. That was... It's the only way back then. I mean, you know, I... How, how did you first become involved with international tape trading? That's a good question. I don't even remember. Yeah. I mean, I just remember at one point I was getting maybe 10 packages a week of cassettes. Dude. And track listing and sending out as and many, you know? like memorizing it, yeah, like yeah. absorbing it in a way that is like I, I yeah. I'm gonna guess that like that shit is probably still etched in your. Oh brain. yeah, yeah, that's you know I remember all that stuff, all those demos. I still have my demo tape collection. Yeah, I still have a box full of packages with the original tapes that were sent to me with all the track listings and stuff. And you know you'd pick out what you really liked, and then you'd get a couple of fanzines here and there. Mm-hmm. And I mean the fanzines really sort of uh you know help the whole scene blossom because i mean you were you know you'd have no idea where to find more stuff from a particular band and then you'd see like a demo review with an address and send five bucks with a stamped envelope to this yeah this address and you know occasionally you'd get ripped off but more often than not you'd get a demo and you'd probably get some stickers and maybe on the other side of the tape they would record their like latest live show or rehearsal or something and you know, then this you just build this this network out of that, yeah. and uh, you know, next thing you know, some bands are getting signed and some are touring, and you know, it just became like the next, the next level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the first old lady drivers was that was you and Alan Dubin. Yeah, right. That, man, that's great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I think I was either 16 or 17 when we did that record. Like that first record is psychotic. Yeah. I it's... mean, I, I, re- I, I, I hate it. These, when Do I listen re- to it, it makes me cringe. To this day? Yeah. You haven't come back around to find the charm in no, it? No, no. It's like... Uh, and it's funny because uh, at the time, I was just sort of like... I just... You know, Alan would take care of the lyrics and uh-huh. sort of the imagery and stuff and... You know, the guy's just, you know, he's always been kind of a fucking goofball. Right. And, you know, I mean, one of the reasons we sort of started working together was because of the, you know, non-PC humor and, you know, just disgusting humor. And it was funny as hell to me as a, as a teenager. But yeah. now it's like, I wish a lot of those ideas were developed in a more serious way. I mean, how how hard can you be on a seventeen year old though? Yeah, true. You, you know, I didn't have a problem with it at the time, <laughs> man. But I do, I remember uh, 
and this is kind of weird. Uh, David Vincent from Morbid Angel was uh-huh. a big, big fan of uh, the previous band I had, Regurgitation. Right. And the second demo that we did, I sold a lot of them. We did really well. At one point, uh, you know, we were being solicited for demos from Combat Records wow. and bigger labels. And uh, one day, I'm still living with my family. I'm like 15 or 16 years old, and a fucking tour bus pulls up in front of my house. And I'm like, what the fuck is this bus doing here? And, and two minutes later, my mother comes upstairs and she's like, there are two large men at the door. One of them is David Vincent. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Couldn't believe he's, yeah, they're basically parked outside of my suburban house in the Morbid <laughs> Angel. I guess it was their first tour. And him and, and Trey come up into my bedroom. You know, I'm just blown away that these guys are here and we're hanging out. You, you didn't know they were coming. No, he didn't tell me he was coming okay. over. He just showed up. <laughs> yeah. So he's asking me what I'm doing, and uh, we had just recorded the Old Lady Drivers album, so I put it put on the the. It was either a rough mix or just a cassette version of the final mix. <laughs> and he was listening to it. He's like, "I really, I, I like how fast it is, and I like the riffs, but it's just too fucking goofy for me." Yeah. And at the time, I was like, you know, I understand that, but it's sort of it's fun for us. And then, but like now, I think of it, and it's like. He was right. It, it's just too fucking goofy. Right. <laughs> For me. Yeah. As, as an adult. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. But, you know, people enjoyed it. Yeah. It was an early grind record. I can't really be too hard on it. I mean, who was it? That was, uh... well, yeah, since this, like, Scott Walker passed away, you know, mm-hmm. a week or two ago. Right. And I was watching this interview with him. I'm... That is to say, I've been, like, checking back in with a lot of his shit since mm-hmm. he passed away. But he said something like, um... Like Scott, like like the drift is like now that he's where he is, like the drift is like sixty five percent of what he wanted it to be and what it should be. But then the record that he made with Sun was like ninety five percent. All right. And then you know, but the I guess like the idea being that like you kind of like you can only do so much at a time mm-hmm. based on what your skills, your yeah, sure. your interests, your you know your development. And is. what do you do when you hit that hundred percent? And you might as well just quit. Yeah, and go like... to the forest. <laughs> <laughs> the forest and that. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the idea. I was talking. Uh, you know Chris Corsano. Uh, the name sounds familiar. Yeah, Spe- I mean, amazing, amazing drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, you should check him out. He's yeah, fucking insane. He says something to me about it's much easier. He's much more forgiving of the records from years ago. Than he is of the most recent ones where he should have known better. Right, right. To do stupid shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a funny way of looking at it. I mean, I'm typically happiest with the most recent yeah, thing, me you too. know. But like I said, I was a teenager. I mean, the fact that I was, you know, doing a record at that age anyway, I, sh- I should probably be a little bit less harsh. Totally on it. I mean, but, that uh, that's there's a I, I know a few people like that. Like 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 what I'm getting from you, which is. I'm I'm completely amazed that you were able to get going so early. Yeah. Like Rod, you know Roz Messi and I? Yeah. I had a conversation with him recently and right. he was like fucking selling electroacoustic like breakdancer music at like age fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I don't even know where you get that shit. Yeah, yeah. So how long did Morbid Angel hang out in your bedroom? Like an hour. David actually kicked Trey out of the out of the the house because uh he was trying to listen to this recording and Trey had just found like an old bc rich guitar or something was just shredding away on it and yeah dave was getting pissed off he's like go wait in the bus <laughs> that, that's that's utterly bizarre yeah it was but so putting that record out in earache <clears throat> from then like how quick when did you begin to get involved with like the downtown zorn like knitting factory shit uh probably 
a year or two after maybe there was i think like a three-year break between the original album and when we shortened the name to old and did the low flux tube record i mean you know john was in the studio for the first day when yeah we were doing that one uh for the mixing anyway he got into a an argument with the with the mix engineer and didn't want to come back after that which in retrospect you know i sort of wish uh, we had chosen a different mix engineer. Yeah. When we were done mixing the record, he confided in me and Alan that he was going deaf in one ear. Oh, fuck. It's like, that's, you're not really you're supposed in, to engineer. in the wrong mixes. line of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was like maybe a, about a year after the record came out is when I met John because he actually said he was a fan of that record. Yeah. So, which is probably why he, you know, offered me any sort of advice and or like you know musical suggestions and stuff like that yeah and had you were you familiar with him prior to that like i knew uh, i knew the naked city record yeah yeah, and that like that blew my fucking mind okay i couldn't believe it when i heard that yeah there's always like there's like two sides of that people fall on yeah 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 i think danny danny loker played it for me the first time i heard it used to go up to queens and hang out with him on occasion and we were driving around and he asked me if i ever heard of John Zorner Naked City and I hadn't and he put on that I guess that first one that was on Electra was that yeah it? and you know I did, couldn't believe music like that existed it was like what I had wanted to hear for so long right and then right after that was uh when Mick started working on the painkiller stuff with them so mm-hmm. as usually he'd come and, and crash with me and then uh I drove him out to, to Greenpoint for the original sessions. But at um, Laswell's place? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they let me hang around, and I watched that record being recorded. Was Oz Fritz the engineer? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. That sounds right. Was that So during this, everything we've talked about, was the um, the interest in <clears throat> the production aspect of music developing? or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And watching Laswell work and stuff, he just always had, like, just, you know, ideas popping up yeah unorthodox stuff like i remember the first time i ever saw someone do something like scratching a vinyl record with two inch master tapes he was doing that yeah (laughs) just what the fuck are you doing right (laughs) right would and at any point uh did like dub music become like part of your oh yeah absolutely yeah like as crusty and psychedelic as possible yeah i loved like the early creation rebel and the dirty sort of like Prince Farai stuff and yeah, you know, all the classic stuff. Did you ever read that book, Bass Culture? No. Oh, you should check it out. Uh, <laughs> Dude, it's yeah. all about like, like, like in Jamaica, like sort of like when that stuff uh, kind of all came together. It's right, a combination right. of like fucking drug cartels, right. psychotic dudes, like building their own like mixers and shit. Good. Yeah. It's just everything's covered in dust right, and right. like weed and yeah. violence. I have read some stories about, you know, like, king tubby studio and uh what's his name lee perry and people yeah it's weird like i don't i'm glad that i've got i'm at a place where like little digital boxes can do so much yeah but when you hear about these dudes like dropping reverbs to get like a slap effect (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's old school yeah but it's pretty amazing how far the technology has come these days yeah so much of it out there too it's like do you keep up with it are you like yes and no uh like I, I, I'll get like, I'll get gas for new gear, uh, maybe once or twice every five years. Yeah. And then just like, whenever you want to see what's going on in the world of like 
boutique pedals. It's always just like, just melts your head when you start looking at, at what's out there now and yeah. and then listening to sound clips. You know, it's like I I sort of went on a little uh, buying spree uh, last year and found like a couple of you like granular synthesis in a fucking pedal. That uh, Red Panda thing? The Red Panda one. Yeah. Uh, do you know the Gotherman stuff? No. You want you want to melt your head? Check out that. I think he's uh, is he Danish? He's either Danish or Finnish, and it's like Red Panda looks like a boss pedal compared to the stuff this guy's cranking out. Yeah, and you know it's hard to get. I mean, it's probably pretty expensive. Yeah, the stuff, the stuff that I've seen is you know maybe around anywhere between seven and two seven hundred and two grand. But uh, yeah, but not only is it like. A pedal where you can have all sorts of granular effects going on. It will also, you know, store samples and, you know, yeah, it's a real tool. And yeah, I mean, I, mean, I had that red panda thing for like two weeks and got rid of it. Yeah, yeah. I just I couldn't get it to do anything. I, I've used it for a couple of a couple of recordings. There's a record uh, that just came out where it's a collaboration, me and uh, Benjamin Finger, uh -huh. Zavelka, and uh, I have some of that that red panda on that. A guitar going through yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, uh, it's a pretty niche uh, sound that you can... You can't use it on everything. Yeah, right. I mean... That's it, you know? Every now and then you just bust out, like, some torn up sound and... Yeah. Then put it back on the shelf. The one years. dude who I feel like really... I don't I, I don't know. Do people talk about him as much as they should? Is Agata from Mel Banana. Oh, right. Like, the way that guy plays guitar... Is so utterly bizarre yeah, yeah. and just awesome and like dialed in. Yeah, I remember uh, the last tour that Connie did. We first show we played with Mel Banana. Yeah, just watching them play. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a funny bill. Yeah, it like, was. <laughs> I, I don't remember who the third band was, but uh, it was a weird night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you start improvising right away? Um, no, not really. Uh. It's a good question. I started really getting into more experimental music in the, I guess, the early 90s. Like yeah. Right around that first, like, the reboot of old. Uh-huh. Um, because I was doing more stuff in Europe, and uh, then I'd wind up going to shops like Stallplot, and Mick was always a, a really good uh, encyclopedia of what, what kind of experimental music I should be looking for. We were both yeah. into like the really heavy drift and, uh, and you know, some, some of the more bizarre, like concrete music and electroacoustic music. So, uh, I would only need to walk into a shop like that with him and he'd be able to point out, you know, exactly Amazing. what, what I'd want. Yeah. So it, and it, did it make sense at the time? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like it was another one of those things where, it was a type of music that you wanted to hear really badly, had no idea that mm -hmm. it existed. Uh, I would listen to like late night college radio when I was younger and, you know, they'd play stretches of music for two hours without even mm -hmm. until they announced what everything was. And I remember the first thing that really grabbed my attention was uh, it turned out to be a track off of Ambient 4 from Brian Eno's Ambient yeah. series. And so that was the first thing that I ever bought that was more experimental, you know, as far as, you know, that whole genre of music goes. 
but that helped me at least find other things like John Hassel and Michael Brook and people like mm-hmm. that. And uh, but then when I started going to Europe and I was just exposed to the real heady stuff. You yeah. Know, like I, the, were you sort of? I mean, when you think back <clears throat> on it, was it? Um... Was it kind of like the early days with the thrash guitarist where you were kind of like trying listening for enjoyment, but also figuring out like how and why they were doing certain things? Uh, yes and no. I mean, the more the more underground stuff, I think, was probably a better inroads as far as how to, you know, figuring out how to do stuff. But I never really I mean, like, you know, concrete music and stuff like that was just beyond my scope at that point. Yeah. I had no idea how they did it. I only later reading about how a lot of it was just like, you know, tape edits and yeah. different speeds and just, you know, very edit heavy. Did it start to make sense? But uh, I think I grasped the process uh, much quicker when I just started making my own sort of experimental music using the guitar mm-hmm. and... uh getting into digital processing and stuff like that then uh it became a lot more obvious how to how to make a sound how to make like a drone or something that was uh more systematic that would just sort of slowly evolve over time and so i mean most of that stuff was just me just just dicking around and figuring out how to do Mm -hmm. stuff but um yeah, but then I also started to, you know, get into a little bit later, like the sort of glitch electronica that was coming out of like Austria, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that stuff was. Uh, I was pretty new to computers at that point too. But we're talking was, like late nineties. Yeah, like the early the early Migo stuff and uh, Farmer's Manual uh-huh. and shit like that, and that was sort of. Uh, I really liked the idea of uh, using computer software as a yeah. sound manipulator. I, mean, I remember the, the first, um, when I heard the first Kid 606 record, mm. that was like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, I'd yeah. never, I mean, I had already <clears throat> been enjoying um, like crazy, like electroacoustic music, mm-hmm. which to me, in my mind, was completely separate from like, you know, dance music oh, yeah, or like yeah. techno music. Right, right. And I, that, that like shattered a lot of walls inside <laughs> yeah. my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always good to hear like uh, heavily experimental uh, bend going into you know a more traditional kind of music or yeah. a more like genreified type of music. Well, it's just like it's so much more like like something like that first kid's six of six record or like you know, like Square Pusher or like mm-hmm. Apex Twin like all that kind of is so much more likely to shock more people mm-hmm. than something that like ten people know about. Right. You know. Yeah. Um. And it's also weird. I mean, I still like I've always you know been checking shit out, but like. When I get the hankering for like some good dark music, mm-hmm. I kind of lean towards like Ligeti. Oh right, right. And you know yeah. like that that sound world is right, kind of right. Yeah, I know Connie used to use one of those passages for an opening sound bite. Like before you guys came on stage. Yeah, right. So Connie started in like the early two thousands. Yeah, that was. Uh, I think we did the first recordings in two thousand. And how did you first con- uh, make contact with O'Malley? Uh, I met him at a, an ISIS, ISIS gig downtown. Uh, is Brownies still around? I don't think, no. Club, yeah. Yeah, it's gone. ISIS were playing at Brownies, and uh, Dave Witte introduced us. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, it was like I asked him what he was up to music-wise, and he said nothing. And But Burning Witch had ended. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, I think he was just doing a lot of design work and maybe working on uh, his zine and, and maybe a label at that time. But uh, 
I guess Sun was still was had just started at that point too. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I wasn't. I mean, I was always doing something, but I didn't really have a band per se. And you know, I got him to to come out and and jam with me and Tim and Alan, and you know, it started to come together pretty effortlessly. So we just yeah. kept doing it. That is, uh, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much you want to talk about Kanye, but like that fucking music. <laughs> I remember when I contacted you about mastering a record, and I and you sent like I remember like saying something in the email like yeah man I want this to be really loud and kind of like intense, and it came back like like and I was like oh yeah I guess if you ask the dude from Kanye to make something like really loud and intense, <laughs> like that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, that band was. Uh... Ugh, just pushing like not just volume but like our our mental state at the yeah. time you know <laughs> the the band wasn't really around that long was it no i think uh 6 years total okay and you know we it was a little bit more time between records than most bands i guess like every 2 years we'd put out a record yeah but everybody had other things going on at the time well every everyone those records is like pretty different yeah i mean i guess you can say that about most of the bands that i've that i've been in I mean, I don't really ever see the point in doing the same type of record twice. Right. But with something that slow, there's so many directions you can take it in. And, you know, we wanted to try a lot of different things, uh, which we probably could have done if it had, you know, lasted longer than it did. But, um, yeah, the, I think the juxtaposition between the first two records is pretty pretty extreme. Yeah. It's, uh, the first one was so dense and just screechy and... A lot of feedback, and then yeah. the second one was there was just the second one is sort of where I really thought uh, the sound could have been developed a lot more. And wait, you mean like that was the goal going into it, or listening back to it, you feel like it could have been? Well, just listening back to it because it wasn't a conscious decision where we were like, let's just spread this one out more and you know have a lot more de decay and yeah. subtlety in it. But uh, that's just the way it, it came out. Which is really, you know, pretty typical. I mean, I don't really, I don't really go into a recording session. I have a, I have an idea the way I want things to sound. Or if writing music, it's like I can sort of form the complete thing in my head pretty quickly. But as, but then production enters the picture, and that can totally change the sound of a record. And like the production on the second record is. I mean, it's a DIY production, yeah. but it's very, there's a lot of space in it. If we really just cranked up the gain and close mic the shit out of everything and then compressed the hell out of it, it, you know, it would have sounded a lot more like the first record. Yeah. But instead there's this sort of overall space to it. Even in the busy parts, there's still a degree of space that just makes it, I don't, I'm not going to say ambient, but... It just suggested that that's, that band could have been taken in, in a number of different directions. Did you feel that way at the time? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was uh, I was really sort of excited to see where the band's sound could go from that one. But then the following album was uh, primarily uh, the, the, the writing was done by tim and and steve mm -hmm. and i wasn't involved that much in it you know the our rehearsal space had moved like to the edge of brooklyn and it became a, a little problematic to get everybody in the same room and tim and steve were always like 
you know, it was the easiest trip for them, but it was also like, you know, they, they enjoyed getting together to jam more where I was more interested in piecing together, you know, music Mm -hmm. and, you know, to have a definite goal. But, uh, you know, uh, so basically the third record took a a direction that I, I think I have very little, uh, to do with. And it's just, it just, to me, it just seems kind of like, a more of, you know, instead of going somewhere different from the first and second record, it's sort of like went backwards a little bit in my opinion. Yeah. But, but I mean like with, you know, like we were saying, you know, just a little while ago with musical hindsight, um, and now you can see that, you know, the influence that that band has had, Mm -hmm. how those records all kind of sit beside each other, Mm -hmm. what could have been possible. Um, do you feel satisfied from, from that position? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm satisfied with anything if it's, if it can't be compared to something else. I mean, there, I haven't heard any records that sound like Con 8 since, so, yeah, you know, I haven't, like, same thing with old, I haven't heard any records that sound like those old records, so, you know, but, let's job talk about, accomplished, I guess. Yeah, definitely, yeah. but, but you're satisfied when something can't be compared to, to anything else. For the most part, yeah. I mean, as long as it's, you know, not obviously a steaming pile of shit, you know, <laughs> then it's like, who cares if it doesn't sound like anything else? I mean, you don't want it to at that point. But, right. Uh, you know, it was a unique sound. We had a good time doing it. We uh, sort of, you know, put a stamp somewhere in the time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. But that, I don't know. I don't know. That was, that was encouraging for me to hear that. Like, I get... You know, like when I get like my darkest and like you know most bitter, I, you know, I, f- I always feel like I'm kind of like out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. But like I have to remind myself that the wilderness is often like the better place you, to be. You be. Yeah, right, right. It's uh, you know, if if you can look back at something and sort of you know realize that someone can't really ape it, or because I mean there have been bands since that have. You can tell they're trying to do the same type of thing, sure, but they just can't get that formula right. Then right. that's that's something that like that that gives me a sense of pride in a comedy. I mean, I think a lot of that, you know, you can never. Everything is sort of like a confluence of you know circumstance mm. and ingredients and everything right, else, right. and <clears throat> part of like when I think about Con Eight, and I've spent a lot of time um, with those records. Cool. Part of that music to me is like, I kind of have to like take a deep breath before I listen to it. It's like, I, I, I'm going to go in to like for it, a yeah. really intense place that, you know, is, can, can kind of be like pretty punishing. Um, and that's certainly a big part of what's attractive about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a sound world to it mm-hmm. that, you know, y- yeah, you can put it on paper, you know, like slow riffs and, and screaming, however, like whatever you want to take out from it. Mm-hmm. But it's the, it's the sound of the records. It's the, you know. It's I don't even know what I'm trying to say right now, other than the fact that like it is a sound world that is like utterly unique to itself. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not background music. I mean, you can't put it on and sort of ignore it. It's, no, it's for a for such a slow, you know, not static, but just a slow music. It's it commands a lot of attention. Yeah. So. So when that band ended, I mean. Is, has it is it always has it always been important to you to always have a band going? No, no, definitely not. Yeah, uh, I think after that band, I took a pretty big break from bands in general. 
I mean, me and Tim worked on the Jodas records, but mm -hmm. that was more of like a recording project than anything else. I mean, we've never never performed live with that band. Uh, so yeah, I guess I I don't think I've been in a band since then. Really? Yeah. You've wow. stayed really active, but yeah. I mean, wow, that's a long time to to not be in a band. Bands are like kind of like families. Yeah. Everyone kind of fits yeah. into like. Eventually, you want to get away from them for a good reason, you know. <laughs> no. I have, have a good I, family; I shouldn't complain. Yeah, I don't know, dude. I think I've I've always been terrified of bands. Yeah, and it's sort of like don't know how to like. Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to be in a band and and have it be worthwhile, there's well, there's a degree of responsibility that comes with that, but you also. It's easy to lock yourself away and not have to deal with people, you know? That's easy. It is easy, and it. Could, I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm like <laughs> talking about myself now, but, like, yeah, it's a source place. of a lot of problems for yeah, me. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. I see parallels between my, like, fear of being in bands with people to, like, like seriously, like, fucked up problems in my yeah, personal life. Sure. I mean, it's all related, really. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's like, and, you know, three three quarters of that band uh, were people that, had known each other for 20 plus years you and, tim and alan yeah, yeah i mean you know so so does that i mean is is that like i mean i know you can't speak for for other people but like is like steve like a stepmom in that case like yeah it's like well he was from the west coast for one thing yeah so it's like there's a different speed that people sort of yeah move at and i know he had like you know there was an adjustment period for him living in new york I mean, I, you know, whenever I come back to New York now that I don't live here anymore, it's like I, I don't know how people can sustain this kind of lifestyle. <laughs> it's I the worst. Look around, and they're just surrounded by people. And when I lived here, it's like you open up your front door to go to work, and there's someone pissing on the side of your door. Yeah. You know, back then it's just like you know I was young. I didn't give a fuck. It's like well that could be me. You know, at three o'clock in the morning sure. on a Saturday if I'm fucked up enough. But now. It's like if I were to walk walk out of my home, someone's pissing on my house, I'm going to kill them, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. So it's yeah. like how, you have to really put up uh, – you have to have barriers in place that, you know, will, you know, allow you to live in a place like this. And Dude, so. you have to like really – like I, I go out to the West Coast pretty good bit because mm -hmm. where my in-laws live. Right. And I have to like pretend that I'm not this like fucked up city animal. <laughs> Like you have to act. I didn't realize this until recently. You have to actively like sort of remind yourself yeah. that like you're a human. Yeah. With other humans, I saw this dude on the street, like right down here, the corner, right mm -hmm. here. This is like a year ago. I'm walking my dogs at like seven o'clock in the morning, and I start seeing like a like trickles of blood getting like more and more intense. <sighs> and I turn the corner, and there's this dude. He's sitting there on his ass, and his arm is just completely split open. And he's just like gushing blood, but he's talking on a cell phone and he's talking to someone and he's like, yeah, no, I'm going to be at that part. And, and at first I walked by and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I walked back and I was like, hey, dude, can I help you? And like, I realized he was talking on the phone to keep himself calm. Right. Like he called 911, right. which is like really like a smart thing to do. Yeah. But I had to like stop and be like, should I go back and help? Like, yeah, see yeah. If I do need help. That's, that's New York life. That's what, you know. Yeah. You can't, you can't really care about too much when you live here you're gonna be really really depressed really <sighs> upset yeah yeah but you know well, when did you get out of new york um i left probably just over 10 years ago i think 
Okay. Um. Yeah, I was in. Yeah, I was in Philly for about five years, and then moved out to to this. Well, it's called the city, but it's Bethlehem. It looks like a suburb to me. Yeah. Uh, because you know it's like Philly's sort of like stepped down from New York sure. as far as intensity, and then uh, I mean I was just sort of done with city life. Period. After mm-hmm. living in Philly for five years, I mean it's a it's a it's a shithole. You know? shithole yeah. Not to mince words, uh, yeah. Philly's a shithole, and uh, you know there's all sorts of racial tension everywhere, and you know it's like I just want to be left alone at this point. You know, mm-hmm. you know when you're younger, you can't you can't comprehend why these uh, musicians when they get older they sort of slow down and they leave whatever quote scene to because you know they're winding down and they want a little bit of peace and quiet you get older it's like most people i think follow the same suit it's just uh you know you get more antisocial when you get older Mm -hmm. and i've always been antisocial to begin with so now it's like i'm fine being on my own for a couple of weeks at a time without many many people to talk to yeah you know i contact with people through the internet daily but right that's i, I enjoy that wall man it's yeah the, the the fresh air the yeah, yeah. not people slamming up against you yeah yeah so i mean so the 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 impetus to leave new york was well, i mean i had uh actually the last five years i was in the area i was living in hoboken which is not much different from really? New York. Yeah. I thought it was like nice for some reason. I mean, you have to really, it depends on your definition of nice. It's like, it's still extremely crowded, but yeah. the people that live there are fucking insufferable. It's like Wall Street kids that it is don't, right? don't want to live in the city. Yeah. And then the other half is like the old school Italians and everything, which is great because, you know, there's great delis and restaurants yeah. and stuff like that. But then there's just like metropolitan aspect of Hoboken that's like, you know, if you're if you're disgusted by like the upper class of New York, then you probably wouldn't enjoy Hoboken all that much. I mean, you know, the upper class in New York, you know, I said at the start of this that I wasn't going to like bitch about this, but the upper class in New York now isn't even like... You know, coke snorting Wall Street dudes mm. from like American Psycho. <laughs> it's like fucking Saudi princes yeah. who literally like have no idea where they are. <laughs> you know, like it's 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 so utterly bizarre. Yeah, I I have no idea what it's like living here anymore. So it's interesting to hear. It's weird, dude. It's fucking yeah. weird. It's just weird. Yeah. It's it's a weird time. It is. New York is. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem to have much of the charm that it did when I was growing up. I mean, it's still as vile. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> in a different way. In a different way. Well, but actually, maybe you... I, I was just thinking about this today. Like, I, when I leave New York, and I'm talking like now, these days, I'm like, oh, fuck, Trump's going to get elected again in 2020. Yeah. That's right, right? Mm, that's what my girlfriend says. <laughs> I just, like, I, I, I live here where everyone is, like, super liberal. Mm-hmm. Like, it really, that's not the case outside of here. Yeah, I know. I think anybody that has something to lose is going to, you know, veer towards the more reactionary side of politics, you know? Yeah. So. Well, so going back to music. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did, did the, when, when you left New York, 
was there a sort of an idea that you'd be able to work remotely uh, as like an yeah, I mean, uh, my, I'd been doing a lot of mastering at that point, so I can do that anywhere, you yeah. know, any country, any any place that has broadband internet, and I can do that. Yeah. So that wasn't really a concern. Um, most of the people I worked with musically are, you know, spread around the globe too, so it's yeah didn't really affect that either. But uh, as the mastering and 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 mix work sort of picked up, it definitely left less time to make my own music which i'm starting to get back into now a little bit more but it's still i have to do the the technical work because it's paying my bills i have to do it at least five days a week and i've been getting a lot of mix work lately and i don't like to bounce between the two during a week like a work week so i will then schedule mix work for the weekend so i mean it's been like maybe four months that I've been working seven days a week. Are you serious? Yeah, it's yeah. You know, it's time to take a little bit of a break from that. But uh, the mix work is usually coming from various people that I like, and I like what they're doing. And I, I really, I like mixing a lot. It's yeah. obviously a lot more time intensive than mastering, but it's uh, a lot more creative as well. And do do you find that most of the cl- people you work with come to you saying like, "Do your thing on this"? Yeah, I, you know, I get a lot of. Uh, clients that give me free reign to do whatever i want and i mean i i always encourage uh requests and like you know i want uh, when it comes to the technical work it's for me it's all about the artist and what they want yeah but if they specifically say i want you to do what you like to do with a specific detail of the recording then i have absolutely no problem doing that you like that yeah yeah for sure yeah there's a, I mean, I, th- I feel like that's a good place to be. And I think, yeah. I think. I definitely consider myself lucky at this point. And which is why I, when I have to work seven days a week for months in a row, it's like, I'm not going to take it for granted and just like blow it off. But do you have like that, um, that freelancer mentality of like never saying no? Mm, not really. I mean, for the most part, the only time I'll actually reject a job is if if it's just technically beyond repair, really. Like, right. you know, occasionally I'll get something. It's like, it's a digital recording, but it's like in plus RMS values, complete 2x4 block wave with, uh, you know, spikes of, spikes at like... 20 hertz you, 20K, do with it. you know it's yeah. like yeah it's, and they'll want it like mastered for vinyl or something which is physically impossible <laughs> and uh you know sometimes i'll get uh files like that from people and i'll say is there any way that you can submit a version that's just you know lower in level or yeah. just not completely blown through the Give roof something to work with yeah and usually they can do that but you know, with the with computer audio being so so easily accessible these days, and so much like DIY production happening, I, I feel like mastering engineers the world over must be like ripping their hair out, banging their head against yeah. the wall between people who've you know done home productions, mm-hmm. um, which you know God bless them, yeah. but you know maybe not always like have all their fundamentals together, right? And then the number of people who then want to take that shit and put it onto a piece of vinyl. Yeah, I mean, uh, the general 
thought that I have is if you don't know how to mix a record, then don't mix your record. Right. Find someone that knows how to do it. I get a lot of jobs where people are like, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to recording and mixing. Can you master this for me? And that's like a red flag right there. Yeah. But it's, I want to help these people out. It's like there I've gotten a lot of uh, technically uh, impossible jobs where the, the music is actually good. Yeah. The recording quality is fucked or just the finished mix or the levels are fucked. But, you know, I want to help these people. And if I can do so, then I, I will. And But if it's something that's like, I will only be able to, I might be able to make it technically sound, but in the process, I'll make it sound much, much worse. Then I'll, I'll be upfront about that and just really try to to not take the job. I mean, because you have to be cautious about what you put your name on. Uh, That's true, yeah. And really, I mean, when people judge masters just by hearing a finished record, it doesn't make much sense because Mm -hmm. they have nothing to compare it to. Mm -hmm. But But going back to something you said um, a minute ago, does it eat at you when you don't have enough time or you haven't been doing enough of your own work? Yeah, it's been been a, a point of contention over the last... I guess maybe four or five years at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of me looks at my back catalog and it's like, I've I've done enough already. You Uh know, you don't have to do it. And at the same time, I see the way the music industry has become since broadband internet sort of changed the whole landscape. Uh And a lot of the labels I used to work with to release my own stuff don't even exist anymore. No. Um, or a label will be like, we're we're digital only, and it's like, so what what the fuck do I even need you for, man? I have an internet connection, right? But right, you know, at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, I if I've done something that I think is good enough to actually release, you know, I want to do it, and I'm not really looking to make money off of it, but I'm not really looking to have someone lose money off of it either. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm toying with the idea of li- limited vinyl pressings, you know, sell them through Bandcamp. But, uh, and I don't mind losing money personally. Mm-hmm. If I were to press a couple hundred copies of a record and wind up sitting on a hundred of them, I don't really care. So I'll probably, you know, pursue that in the future. But there's just so little time at the end of the day. And it's like the last thing you want to do after working on music for eight hours listen to fucking music for eight hours more music yeah so you know i squeeze things in here and there when i can and uh i recently moved and set up a small project studio in my new house yeah so yeah it's like a did some test recordings that came out good enough where they'll probably actually be a release of some sort within the next few months and so you'll be able to do work at home right cutting tracks yep which is yeah that's most of the battle that might one be step right one there. Yeah, yeah yeah and the it, fact that we're living in a house now that's not connected to a bunch of other houses you don't have to worry about disturbing people means i can do it as late as i want to at night so are you a night person when it comes yeah, to making I mean, shit when it comes to music absolutely yeah i i can focus more during the day on other people's music sure when it's my own uh creativity that has to be you know in full gear then it's always at night yeah which makes city living almost impossible, really. I mean, you get down with headphones, you know, yeah, yeah. but that's not like 
Yeah, I've never been comfortable working on headphones for some reason. I, for some reason, that's the way I'm always most comfortable. Well, you're, and that's you're, why my records, why my records kind of. You work. I'm sure your neighbors appreciate it. <laughs> they don't know, man. My neighbors across the hall are Orthodox Jews. They don't know what the fuck goes on in here. <laughs> they hear these sounds and they're just like, I guess that's what uh, all like you know non-religious <laughs> people do. Um, but I think like it's important, you know. Like, I know for myself, like if I don't practice for a couple days, like it's not even like that. I'm thinking about not practicing, but my mood. My general sense of uh, just like patience and yeah. and comfort, like it gets, yeah, it gets pretty cagey. I noticed that too. And there was a good stretch of time where I didn't even pick up a guitar when I was living in Philadelphia. Does that get like harder to not pick? Like the more you don't pick it up? Yeah. Well, no. The more I don't pick it up, the easier it is to just let it fucking sit there. Right. And then like finally pick it up, and you just horrified at how sloppy yes. you've gotten. So I make it a rule now to at least pick up the guitar for a few minutes every day, maybe more. Right. But uh, oh, that's I hate that feeling, man. Yeah, I'm yeah. in it right now. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my clarinet case behind you, yeah. and I'm just like, even a couple of minutes a day sort of helps keep you in that in that space. But it's like when, I mean, I I get a little pissed off at myself when I think of how my proficiency could be at this point in my life. And it's like, I haven't, I mean, my style of playing has changed quite a bit, but I'm probably sloppier than I've ever been. Yeah. It's a good thing. I don't really care about, you know, like the technical prowess of a musician, as long as they're doing something that sounds good or interesting. Yeah. But still, it's like, I don't want to be. It feels good to have your shit together, your chops. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know? Did that, I thought that record you made with Paul Nelson Love was fucking amazing. Uh, Yeah, that was, uh, that was probably when I took, started to take a big break from playing after that record. But, uh, that was kind of a, uh, it was like a style of playing that I developed with a couple of boxes and, you know, the overdriven amp. And it's like, I, got to this point where I could just improvise like that all fucking day. And, yeah. and to me anyway, it wouldn't become boring. And then we did those sessions and they were like nine in the morning and you Paul's know how, a motherfucker. Oh, he's a monster. Yeah. And it's, you know how hard it is to get your creative juices flowing at like 9am. Yeah. But we still like the whole session was just killer from start to finish. Yeah. And then you know that I think that was the last time I played guitar in that particular style. And listening back to it now, you got to do more of that. I know I haven't released anything else with this sort of system that I spent some time building up, and and here I am. And I got one record to show for it, and uh, I'm so I mean I'm going to try to 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 build back up that particular that particular style of performance and see if. You know, I have some recordings from before that that I'm working on maybe finishing up and, and releasing, but uh, that's that's a really good argument for not just putting down your instrument totally. for a I couple mean, of years. For me, this is, you know, from my personal perspective, you know, as someone who improvises and listens, you know, to improvised music, if you can make improvised music records that demand repeated listening, mm. like, that's a worthwhile pursuit. And, like, that's a record that... I've listened to several times. Right. It has that that ability to yeah, it, you yeah. know? There are a couple of, uh, I don't know, like, what should I call them? Like melodic hooks almost that yeah. that bring me back to that one. But I mean, I was a big fan of Paul's before doing that recording, so. 
You, you just, so, oh yeah, you've played with him. Yeah, I mean, I sitting next to that dude while he's on the kit is... Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like a thunderstorm. Yeah, the first time I heard him was uh, Connie was touring and Steve put on one of the... Uh, something on rune gramophone that he was on some uh-huh. was it a trio or something i thought it was two drummers playing at first yeah it's like spanish two drummers he was like no it's this guy paul nelson love jazz drummer i do, i had breakfast family. with him about a year ago and he i mean he plays like 300 nights a year yeah that's, yeah that's what he told me like uh i think he said he was up to like 270 something gigs at that point in the year it's insane was like, jesus christ checking us real quick do you need to get up to the wrestler no i don't have to be back there until like around maybe six six fifteen okay like yeah so, so we'll, we'll wrap it up in a second um yeah i don't know maybe we're good are you so you you are planning on actively getting back in on your own stuff yeah i mean i have some things in the works right now uh working on a, a larger project that I haven't really been cleared to talk about at this okay. point, but it's something that I think a lot of people probably find interesting that, you know, they wouldn't have expected to happen. Yeah. But uh, aside from that, I've got a couple of collaborations. I've got another collaboration with Benjamin Finger that uh, should be released later this year, I think. Um, a solo record that uh, actually incorporates that that playing style I was talking about uh, around the death death rattle mm-hmm. period that uh i'll like i said i'll probably have it pressed myself do a yeah. private pressing and sell it on Bandcamp. do it do so it. You know, yeah it's like you know i've had so much music sitting around for so long like when i released those uh Bandcamp archives i guess it was last year music's just been sitting around on tapes for 20 years or something yeah what's the fucking point has yeah. been has, has getting it out through Bandcamp has that been satisfying? Yeah, it's, I, I didn't expect anybody to be interested really, and they did. You know, they did enough to make the the time it took to actually transfer all the tapes worthwhile. Yeah, but um, you know, I've been so anti-internet streaming and this this whole new format of disposable music mm-hmm. i really I, I fucking hate it me too you know when i was a kid i would drive two hours just to find like a fucking pharaoh sanders impulse record yeah. or something two hours to buy one record that i had never even heard so i didn't even know if i was gonna like it right and now it's just like download delete download delete listen listen delete it's it's really depressing man it is depressing yeah it feels so, like a fucking trough yeah and really, there's such little quality control going on in the music that is yeah. available because anybody can upload anything whenever and wherever they want, that it just makes it like this this uh, huge cloud that you have to work your way through to find the stuff that's worth listening to. But uh, so I, I had avoided things like Bandcamp for so long, mm-hmm. but then figured, you know, it's, it's sort of geared towards the artist mm-hmm. and there's... There's very little that isn't very, there's very little about it that can cause problems. And, you know, so just to give it a shot and see what it's actually like using it, I did the, this archival series and, you know, I enjoyed every aspect of it. There was nothing that I didn't like about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the fact that you can actually link, uh, physical release sales to it is a huge bonus i think so yeah. 
and I'm not expecting miracles, but, you know, it would be pretty cool to, to be able to, you know, press your own, your own vinyl and yeah. sell it yourself. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I wish Bandcamp, I wish there was some way to, like, I wish it had some sort of, like, curatorial aspect, mm. you know, to, yeah. like, sort of separate... Like, right. That's, even if it was like, you know, Plotkin recommends and it was like, here's the fucking 30 releases on here that I think are like right, right. essential because there's a I, lot of shit on there. Yeah. I guess the way the most efficient way to go about it is you hear something that you like from a specific band or an artist that you didn't know about. And then you just go see if they have a band camp page. And if they do, you support them. Yeah. You know? It's a good model. It really yeah, is. Yeah. Like for where we're at right now, I think it's kind of like yeah. the best that anyone's doing. And it would be much better if there wasn't so much to sift through. You know, like you're saying, it's just there's a whole... It's a lot. There's a... Yeah. And, you know, people say like, oh, don't be negative. But there is so it's about being much negative. It's garbage. A, it's about being inundated. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence. Like, I watch a lot of movies. And, like, it's not a coincidence that I've watched Lawrence of Arabia four times in the last month. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I'm like, my something in my consciousness is saying, go back to the fucking things you know gigantic you're not wasting your time on. masterpieces that yeah. are, you will never be a waste of time. Right, right. Yeah, it's tough. It's, uh, this kind of volume in music has never been seen before. It's just so flooded. It, it's it's really a matter of personal like someone like you know I have a job and like some dude I work with is like do you know fucking they, they asked me about something I was like I don't even know what the fuck you're talking about and they're like oh he's he, um she's a YouTube celebrity and I was like stop oh yeah stop. that's like, all stop I need right to there. know yeah. yeah you told me everything right there yeah I mean you know there's something to be said about how the old music model kind of sucked and you know musicians didn't really get what they should have as far as compensation goes and there's all sorts of problems with mm -hmm. it and everything but now there is absolutely no quality control going on mm -hmm. which i mean might be good for the lowest common denominator because you know they're just being told what to listen to anyway and it's easier for them but i mean i'm i'm i don't give a shit about mainstream or pop music really for the most part so it becomes even more difficult to find interesting original music. In I'll, I'll tell you about a recording I heard, and maybe we'll wrap it up on yeah. this. I heard a recording on Bandcamp the other day mm -hmm. that part of me is like, I mean, this is the exploitative, like, shitty part of me, is like, <laughs> should I, like, make a thing out of this? When I was a kid, there was this uh, lawyer, like a famous, like, ambulance chaser who had commercials on all the time, who, um, it turned out, it was a really big story, that he paid these guys to kill his wife and it happened in front of his small children, like in like they got taken hostage. It was this whole crazy, Ugh. like fucked up thing that dragged out in the news for like two years. And I couldn't sleep the other night. I was like, I wonder what happened to that dude. So I Googled him. And then like by more and more Googling, I found a link to his son's bandcamp page. <laughs> no. And it's this dude, like he records all of his music like with an iPhone. And he's like strumming an electric guitar. It's not plugged in. It's just the sound of like right, an right. unplugged. And he's kind of like singing this crazy shit over it. And I'm like, this is outsider art, <laughs> like on the highest level. Like, do I do I link this around or I like yeah. shut off my phone and pretend like I didn't see it? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Only in today's musical atmosphere would would that happen? Yeah, be able to find that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came over, and I'm glad to finally meet you in person. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you for having me. All right, 
That was James Plotkin. Legend. Absolute legend. Absolute nice guy. Creative as fucking all get out. And just, you know, in my estimation, the best. You could do a lot worse than spend time with the music of James Plotkin. And I recommend you do. It's a deep and vast catalog. Lots of rewarding listening awaits you if you uh, choose to explore it. Go to plotkinworks.com. Go to the 5049 website, will you? Become a Patreon donor. Check out some past episodes. Buy a CD, compact disc. Speaking of which, there's some new shit coming out soon. I'm, I, I've been, I'm kind of slow, but there's a couple records in the can, and uh, there'll be more on that soon. All right. Hope you guys are all cool. Talk to you next week. Bye.